welcome to the SPS Digital Learning Hour. Brought to you by the Digital Learning and Assessment Department. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Mike Thomas. And I'm Suzanne Zargis. We're bringing you the latest news in Springfield Public Schools in regards to technology, along with inspiring interviews from teachers who are using technology in the classroom. We'll also inform you of latest updates, practices, and news as it pertains to our district. Whether you are new to using technology in the classroom or are a seasoned vet, we are here to help. Thanks for joining us this week. In case you missed it, the latest blog post is out and it's all about using OneNote as a tool in the classroom. There are many great features with it, especially when you do the add-on. So go check it out. You can see why it's the trapper keeper you always wish you had when you were in school. In case you missed it, if you're still having problems locating your courses for this year after the naming change, the simplest way to find them is to search on 2018. If you try that and are still having issues, feel free to email DLA support. So in case you missed it, there's mandatory ethics training for all teachers in Springfield Public School. You have to complete this every year. It's through GCN. If you are new to the district and you have not done this before, then you need to go to your clerk and ask for your school code. In case you missed it, there's a new utility called Respondus 4.0 available to teachers, which will allow you to import your quizzes and assessments directly from Microsoft Word into Brightspace. You can download this utility or this software off the application catalog within MySPS or the application center within the IT Hub. Please download this software and give it a try. If you have any questions, email GLA support at SpringfieldPublicSchools.com and we'll happily assist you getting your quizzes off of paper and into Brightspace. In case you missed it, the H drive is going away. In three months, you will no longer have access to any files on the H drive. It's read-only now, but as of December 31st, it will not be available. If you have any questions as to how to transfer your files, please email DLA support. In case you missed it, there's a new item that's downloadable in the software center. It's called Microsoft Translate. And what you can do with Microsoft Translate is you can either take a picture, you can talk, or you can type in your language and you can have it translated to a number of other languages. And so this is a great beginning tool. It's not perfect. It does make mistakes because everyone speaks slightly differently, but it is a great place to start, especially for those teachers who have level one ELL students in their classroom. That's it for In Case You Missed It. Coming up next, Hot Takes. Welcome back for our hot takes this week. Suzanne, are you going to continue along in your series? Absolutely. So the series I started last week was The Distracted Classroom by James M. Lang, and this is within the Chronicle of Higher Education. But don't be fooled, just because the title says higher education, it actually does pertain to the K-12 environment. And basically what we talked about last week is how can educators um, respond to students who are distracted. And the example that this author used last week was a student who did very well in his class, but he noticed would occasionally seem very distracted. And he found out one day that her cell phone was in her pocketbook on the floor. So she just couldn't resist 
looking down to see if anyone had texted her. So, yeah, I mean, having it, I just think about it because, like, for the most part, when we see our students, we know that if they are looking straight down, it's either a book in their hand or their phone is hit sitting on their lap. So, I mean, it's pretty clear, but from the way that the, our author was talking was equating the student from looking at her phone, like, just barely glancing down so it wasn't noticeable, to the same that I would equate to staring out of a window while someone's talking. Right. So, very easily distracted, um, very um, inconspicuous. Mm-hmm. And what might surprise some people is that this was a student who was doing very well in his class. Mm-hmm. So despite being distracted, she was getting the work done. Um, the book that he is basing his articles on is The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World. So I love the fact that the authors of that book are a neuroscientist and a psychologist. I'm forever trying to figure people out, whether it's students and how they learn or just in general, what makes people tick and why do they do what they do. So last, we ended up where we knew educators needed to have engaging lessons and meaningful meaningful goals that students were aware of as a way to deal with distractions. In this, the second of a series of his articles based on that book, um, he talks about how in history, humans have always had to deal with distractions. And he quotes William Wordsworth over 200 years ago, said that humans were craving for extraordinary, an extraordinary incident, which the rapid communication of intelligence hourly gratifies. So at that point, I think 200 years ago, it was the proliferation of newspapers and pamphlets. And at that time, that was how fast information was coming. And over time, the technology has changed, but we're still eager to find that information quickly. Yeah, Suzanne, you couldn't put it any better. And as Michael was saying, oftentimes when you're in the classroom and you see a student looking straight down, uh, the result could be a a smartphone. Uh, We've even come to the point now where if a student's looking at his or her wrist, they're probably looking at a smartwatch. So finding this balance, and as the article mentions, finding this balance where we can keep students from being distracted. Um, And as the article states, uh, you know, studies have found that you know, when people pause from a task for a digital disturbance or a distraction, it can often take up to 30 minutes for a said person to regain focus. So finding this fine balance uh, where technology is advancing at such a fast pace where students have access to so much, it seems to be uh, quite a challenge. So it really does seem like, especially from the information that you just quoted in the article, that the whole 30 minutes thing kind of blows my mind because I think about, like, especially with teaching fifth graders, I had to constantly say, go put your phone in your bag or put it on my desk. I don't want to see it out. And I never had like the science behind like why. And it was just one of those like, I know that you're not focused. And I know that it takes you a while to get refocused, which I think is exactly what he's talking about here with the research and the articles. I know he quotes a lot of different books in here too. And it's just one of those things where I finally have somebody that can put to words and the science behind why I liked to do certain things in my classroom, which was exciting to me. And it should be exciting to our, the teachers that are here because, yes, kids' cell phones need to go away when they are not supposed to be out. Right. But, he even talked about how if you're having a conversation with somebody, there was a, a survey done or a study done where people having conversations 
those that had a cell phone, not on, not facing them, face down, but still on the table, if the cell phone was there, they did not consider the conversation as meaningful or memorable as they did when the cell phone was not in sight at all. So just the fact that it is there, that it's on the table or that it's in her pocketbook or closer than the backpack that you made those students put it away, they're still looking for this neurological cookie. I love that phrase that <laughs> that he talked about because it's an immediate gratification that people get when, they, when they're getting a text or a message or, or whatever it is that's flashing up on their cell phone or their laptop. They're looking for that quick gratification of information. And uh, See, and that makes me think of the grocery store. Because in the grocery store, that instant gratification of going grocery shopping is not the fact that you just did a great job budgeting your money. It's the fact that you're standing there at the register waiting for the person in front of you and they've got a giant candy rack or they have all those tabloid magazines that you're like, oh, Prince Harry did what? Oh, there's a Snickers bar. Maybe if I get a Snickers. And then you eat it right away, even though knowing like that cookie is or candy bar in this case like while it is really good it's not really good for your body but it's that instant gratification that's why like giving prizes out for things is all has always been a big deal it's like it's just that slight little like yes i want more i want more so again it make my my mind is jumping all over the place right now i think of the the rabbit, it's a cartoon, like the rabbit sitting on top of the horse, holding the carrot out in front of the horse to make the horse move to go to the carrot so that they can move to where they need to go. Absolutely, Mike. And I just can't help but keep thinking back to the information and the role it plays in all of this. Uh, the article made a great point that I always think back to uh, about how throughout human history, we've always been limited to the information that we could see in front of us for centuries. Mm -hmm. However, you know, over the course of the past hundred years, that Pandora's box has since been open, right, to what we've talked about now, our smartphones, our Apple Watches, so on and so forth. So it's just, it's incredible to see just how much, you know, humans as a whole want that, that information, you know, the article quotes us as being information forging animals. And I can't help but think that that's a, a pretty accurate depiction of what we've come to. Right, right. Exactly. And the, the other thing that I found so interesting along those same lines is that we've always wanted this information, like you just said, we've always wanted it, we get it so much more quickly now, but the difference today with the technology today and how quickly it's changing is that we don't have as much time to adjust to all of this new technology and the speed in which we can get it. So he has a great comparison here of the past 200 years where he says, if you assume a benchmark of 50 million worldwide users, radio arrived at that same level within 38 years of its invention. So we had 38 years after the radio was invented to really absorb everything that we could get from the radio. Then for the telephone, it dropped to 20 years. And for the television, 13 years. Then you look at cell phones, and we're down to 12 years, the internet, four years. So it keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Facebook, you're down to two years. YouTube, one year. And the winner at the time of this writing 
Angry Birds took over our lives in 35 days. Oh my gosh, I can't even think about how many hours I've wasted playing Angry Birds. <laughs> but you can see that we have less and less and less time to absorb and understand and process this new technology. So it's no wonder that not only educators, but everyone is spinning with what's available. And some are fine and they're racing along as fast as it's coming. And other people are like, whoa, wait, I need to go back to the days of radio and I need more time. <laughs> I think, yeah, absolutely, Suzanne. I think we see that throughout the district often with some of our teachers who, who partake in our tech symposium, who go to MassQ and present on some of these new technologies that they're introducing into their curriculum. It's really providing our students with that, you know, as the article says, that deep satisfaction and immediate pleasure, those cookies, we could say, that they're looking for in this new technology. So it's great to see that that's being implemented throughout our district. Yeah, I'm still, that was one thing I, I really wanted to talk about was like the whole like 20 years for telephones to take over. Like before telephones, how did information get passed from one coast to the other? There was snail mail. And before snail mail, there was the guys on horses delivering mail. Or that pigeons. Or those people who train pigeons. So it's just like Angry Birds, 35 days. I wonder how long Candy Crush took. Because like <laughs> if Angry Birds was 35, I know more people who were playing Candy Crush within like a blink of an eye than I did for people who were playing Angry Birds. And it moves on to something else next time. So I imagine like something like Snapchat or Kick or what name your technology. Apple, like it just takes over so fast. And then we get all that information. And then I think we have a harder time like sorting out that, like what's good, what's bad, what's real, what's fake. I've, I listen to sports radio a lot and they actually talk about something. Well, Facebook, it took two years. So one of the things that showed up on Facebook recently was all about the league rules. Well, come to find out it was somebody making something up about the NFL's league rules. But because it was on Facebook, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people actually believe that it's real. It makes me think back to um, when, I don't know, is it called Star? Like those tabloid magazines, like an alien took my baby or um, Elvis is alive. I think that one comes out every year. Elvis would be like 100 now or something. But like when those first came out and they looked like newspapers, they acted like newspapers, people thought that those things were real. And now we're at such a fast movement of information into our brains that we can't stop and say, wait a second, that doesn't quite sound right. We can't like go back and I think our brains are having a hard time deciphering like what's real and what's not because of this information overload, all of these cookies that just keep being dropped into our brains. Right, which leads right back into our podcast last week, Mike, where we were talking about, I think it was last week, um, about that specific skill that we need to help our students with in figuring out what's real, what's not real, mm -hmm. and how to differentiate all of that. And um, and I did uh, appreciate the fact that the author specifically said none of this necessarily means that we should ban technology from the classroom because he's well aware that we're graduating students into a world full of distractions. So this is the challenge. We need to teach them how to decipher what's real, what's not real, how to cope with this information overload so that they can be productive in the world. I just can't get over, I mean, how accurate Mike described the passing of information and, and what it's come to now. I mean, 
you know, our ancestors were using radios, right? And they couldn't confirm what was real and what wasn't. I mean, I think back to H.G. Wells' is The World of the Worlds. That's when, right. When, you know, folks thought that we were being attacked by aliens, but there was no way to confirm or deny. So, I mean, that's a classic case of information being passed along. And you see that in our day and age now. Um, but what a great parallel to draw. So I think one of the things that I took out of this, too, um, is like, we know this information now. What's it going to mean for the future? Like, I mean, they talk about he, again, with this cookie analogy, like, we know eating too many cookies is not good for you. It will do your body harm. How is that applicable to our minds with this information overload that we are getting every day where I can just go to Google and say, Google, I need this. How to do this? What does this mean? And so it makes me wonder, like, where where we're going as a society as whole, because right. we now have access to everything short of what people are actually thinking in their minds at an actual time. And then it makes me even jump to, um, I know it was a book first, I don't know who wrote the book, but the um, Spielberg movie Minority Report, where they were, like, predicting crimes in the future. And so it's like, are we going to get to that point? I know it's very futurism that I'm talking here, but... Like, are we going to get there because this information overload is someone going to say, oh, I've got the next great idea. Why don't we just put a chip in people's brains that allows us to see what people are thinking and stop them from whatever? Yeah, I'm sure there's there's uh, two sides of the, the story on that. A great <laughs> debate topic, right? Because I can totally see where you're heading there. But I'm going to key in on the sentence that says, learning is hard work and it requires sustained attention. I'm always going to go back to that and hope mm -hmm. that even though every itsy bitsy piece of information is readily available and people could convince me that the world is heading in that direction, I'm me personally, I'm always going to need that sustained time to learn something new. And I hope that doesn't go away. Uh, next week's article is going to talk about recommendations for managing distractions. So maybe we'll get more answers mm -hmm. there. Um, but I think it's just a great topic to talk about. I'd love to hear what teachers think. Absolutely. And um, again, I look forward to reading that book. This was a great article, Suzanne. I look forward <laughs> to working on managing my distractions as well next week. It'll be a great, great topic <laughs> of conversation. All right. So that was The Distracted Classroom. Is it getting worse? We didn't even mention the title of the article. Um, so it's from the Chronic Chronicle of Higher Education. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll with our hot takes. for this week was a shorter article from MindShift. Again, if you've not gone out to MindShift, it is a fantastic site with lots of great ideas for all throughout different aspects of education. They even started their own podcast, so after you listen to us, you should go listen to them. They have about 10 episodes out right now. This article is called Three Video Games That Teach Programming Through Play. Now, as Suzanne knows and Brendan's going to learn, I love 
educational games and I love games in the classroom because you can learn a lot through playing them. I think back to when I was a student and I played Oregon Trail. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? I learned where Djibouti was because of Carmen San Diego and I can now point it out on the map. And so when John Oliver does his whole like this country here and you didn't know that because that's not this country it's actually this one. Um, you can't see the hand motions I'm making but I'm making his hand motions for those of you who do watch him. Um, Games are a great way to learn. And for me, when I was teaching coding, it was kind of difficult. And so having an, a few different tools that could also teach that sort of programming and coding through a game where I didn't have to like pre-teach how to do things was great. And that's what this article talks about. It focuses on three different ones. I can see Suzanne wants to jump in on something. So oh, I've got lots of thoughts on this, but um, one of the first questions I had in, in reading it was, um, well, one, I'm excited about it. I think it's a great mm -hmm. idea, and I think kids will be very excited about these games. But I was curious to know what resources are available to parents. When you think of all the parents mm -hmm. whose children are constantly playing games at home, it would be nice to provide parents with a list of specific games that they would be comfortable knowing that they're learning how to code and that it's an educational game, not just a plain old video game. That's a great point, Suzanne. Michael, I can remember playing Oregon Trail and where the was from in San Diego on my computers. I think that was, in fact, one of the first things I did on a computer was install where the world is from in San Diego, a mm -hmm. uh, floppy disk, <laughs> dating myself here. Um, but this article is fascinating as it talks about the different dynamics in terms of, of coding for students and what is available for folks in terms of um, accessibility. So yeah, this is great. So for Suzanne, I think one of the things that maybe we can do is start to come up with a list ourselves of any time we see articles like this, because I would think that all these games, especially for the students that are taking home a laptop, and especially for our high school students who have hotspots now, they can actually go on and log in and log in anywhere to play these games. Other games I can think of, um, a very popular one actually, is Minecraft. And so if a school is lucky enough to have funds to do Minecraft for education, they could actually be teaching coding through Minecraft, which if you were to go and pull students from third grade to 12th and ask them if they knew what Minecraft was and explain it to you, I would be willing to bet almost all of them would be able to do that. What I liked about these games is that they really focused in on the critical thinking aspect of it. So it's not like a, a point and shoot or a point and click or um, like the strategy that it focuses on is getting them to think about what they're doing first. And I think even like outside of games like this, I think of the um, the Coda Pillar. Like you have that Coda Pillar, you want it to go from point A to point B. How are you going to make it do it? And that's kind of how these games seem to work, in my opinion. Yeah, Mike, and I, I couldn't agree more. I think this article really touches on that fine balance that all these games are, are walking when we're talking about, you know, not limiting the play as to make the game stuffy or over-scaffolded, as the article says, but to also include the rules and procedures that are required for coding, mm -hmm. right? And I think, you know, as we look at some of these exemplars, they're, they're great in terms of showing how you and I were able to use these, these kind of games in our era. Mm -hmm. uh, of walking the fine line between education and play. So, really great example. And I love how uh, they they wanted to stop the phrase learning to code 
and to just start messing with it, as they <laughs> as they yeah, said. Um, that says it all right there, because I think for many people, whether it's just the phrase coding or computer science or learning to code, immediately a wall goes up, you know, that, that's not a positive wall. Right. It's either too scientific or um, not exciting. It just, they have their own preconceptions of what coding is. So if you change that to let's start messing around with this game and see how we can change it mm -hmm. and make it our own, that adds a level of excitement. Um, one question I did have, though, Mike, um, have you gone in to see these games specifically? Because I have a question, but I won't. I, won't. I have not yet because we've been so busy around here with all the other things that we're doing. And then I'm hoping to next week. So after this podcast comes out, I'm hoping to actually be able to have a little bit of time to try some of these or even send them along to teachers who I know do coding and try to get them to try it. That would be great because that was actually tips on both of my questions. One is if you knew of any teachers already using these programs, I'd love to hear mm -hmm. what their experience is. And then... Um, my other thought is just judging from the, the names of these mm -hmm. games, it sounds like they're pretty much geared towards boys. So I'm really curious to know if there are games at the same level that are geared towards girls. Not that we actually always want to have something mm -hmm. so different, but as we talked about last year, Many girls see coding as a boy thing, and that's something that we need to break. So if there are games that mm -hmm. are geared towards girls, I think that would encourage more girls to go into coding. You're absolutely right, Suzanne. I was reading this article, I took a look at one of the softwares called Code Combat, which immediately <laughs> drew my eye. Um, yeah, which I was going to say, that was the first one. Um, like when we, when we start talking about <laughs> the games, that's the first one I want to talk about because it made me so excited. I know. It talks about, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and Knights and Orcs, and I couldn't yeah. have been more excited. I actually wanted to drop everything I was doing <laughs> at the time and start coding. That's because you like Stranger Things. and so Exactly, right? So it, it just, uh, I think you're, you couldn't be more correct about that. There has to be something for everybody. Maybe this. that's my next calling. Maybe I'll start yes. writing <laughs> games for girls. <laughs> so you said you looked at Code Combat. Like, I haven't had a chance to go out to any of these games yet that they talk about. So, is it really like Dungeons & Dragons? It has the look and feel. I just gave it a quick glance over on their website, and it has like a Zelda Dungeons & Dragons look feel, which which is cool. So mm -hmm. obviously, you as the student or the user are coding to complete, complete excuse me, an objective. Uh, and it has that cool feel where you're, you know, you're completing an objective, whether you're, you know, winning a castle or making it through a path. And I look forward to actually exploring it more uh, and sending it to a few teachers to hopefully get some feedback. I'm glad that you gave that description, Brendan, because my next question was... What's Dungeons & Dragons? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, my question was, how will teachers be able to assess the skills that students are learning by playing these games? But the fact that you mentioned that word objective makes me think that each individual game has some set objectives that hopefully are tied to specific standards that the teacher will then be able to assess at a later date. I mean, I think the bottom line for assessment in something like this, Suzanne, is that they complete it. Like, you can't move on. So it's almost like it's more of a mastery-based type thing where you can't move on until you have it down cold. Mm -hmm. 
And I can even think of like other games that I play I've played in the past, like you don't complete all the objectives, like you don't pass the level, and then you have to go back, either start over, or you have to spend more time in that level trying to figure out what you missed. I have um this is how much of a old school nerd I am. On my Xbox 360, I have the original Tony Hawk game. And so in that game, like there's certain objectives you have to make so that you can move on, and there's a couple levels that I'm still trying to get everything so I can open up that last level, but I haven't mastered it yet because I haven't gotten through those things that I need. And so in thinking about like how you can assess what's going on, is the student making progress towards the end? Have they made it to the end? Have they made it to the next level? I think it's it's not like a more it's not as cut and dry as like taking a paper test would be, like because you don't you can't necessarily assess their critical thinking on how they got there without actually talking to them about it. I don't know if any of that made sense. No, it, it did make sense. It definitely does, Mike. It makes me think about our article we were just talking about previously uh, that Suzanne had found when we're talking about trying to constantly stimulate the students, right? So we're giving the students an objective to reach. And I think this kind of task really fulfills that objective for them. It really gets them going on something that might excite them, him or her, hopefully we could find uh, an objective that might suit suit a girl. What? Um, but this is the kind of thing that we're talking about when we're talking about developing digital learners and making these kiddos more excited about doing stuff on the computer. You know, we might not get you know Common Core standards out of this or or uh, an assessment grade, but to have them objective based, uh, just like we are in the workplace, just like they will be one day in the workplace. Uh, this is a great starting point, I think. Yeah, getting that critical thinking going. Because in all three of these games, Beta the Game and Hack and Slash are the other two, which I can see why Hack and Slash might make you think more boy-oriented. I think just knowing that critical thinking is a huge part of this. And also, like um, with all these games, it's very important to be able to read and analyze. And so when you're looking at your code, that code is a very foreign language because it's not an English language. It is a computer language. And so there are certain things that you have to be able to do and spend time over doing too. So I think that's with any sort of game, whether it's like these ones or Minecraft, or I think PlayStation had one called Little Big World where they had like the, the objective of the game was to create the world so that your player can play in the game. And so with a lot of games like this that are more educational based, like these, these ones are more educational based. They're less about, I know one of them talks about modeled after Zelda. Um, it's less like Zelda, like I'm going through, I'm playing Zelda, but I'm now making the world that it is in it makes me also think of those books where i don't know if you guys read them at all when you were younger but they're like choose your own adventure books like you read a page you read a couple pages that says if you want to do this turn to page 14 if you want to do this turn to page 64 and so then you turn to the page and like you could read the same story that same book like multiple times and choose differently each time and get a different story out of it Cool. I like yeah. that book. So, um, what I love about these games, oh, sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, go ahead. One, I, I'm envisioning, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, given you know your experience with teaching coding, but with these games, I'm thinking it also um, encourages collaboration, right? I, I know, at least with um, students that, that I have watched play games, if someone is stuck getting to a certain level, their friends are very quick to come in and say, oh, all you need to do is this. Mm -hmm. And so it's that, that collaborate, collaboration factor that I think is huge in supporting one another to reach 
the objective, which is awesome. And then the second thing I'm thinking of is when you mentioned the fact that this is a a, a foreign language almost, right? Um, I'd be very curious to see how all of our ELL students would do in playing these games because it's not English or Spanish or French or Vietnamese or whatever the language is. It's its own unique language. So I don't know if computer language differs by country. I'm assuming it doesn't, right? So I'm yeah. curious to I know would say how that, they would do. That would be, I would probably say that's a safe assumption is that computer language in the U.S. is going to be the same over in Europe as it is in Asia, as it is in Australia. I guess I'm basing that only on the languages that I know, so I mean, mm-hmm. that's going way back to basic days in COBOL where you do have English words, so they must have different language words in that code, but I don't know right. JavaScript and, and SQL and, and all these mm-hmm. New, well, it's not new anymore, but... HTML5. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and Suzanne, I think what you're talking about is true. I think it does resonate across different language barriers. I mean, I think back to our, our conference last spring when we visited Burlington Public Schools as a part of the Maple Learning Consortium of districts and schools that are hoping to, you know, juvenize and support digital learning. Well, we all observed students working in teams coding in uh, devices to go around loops and jump over bridges and so on and so forth. And it really seems universal and the kids were galvanized by this opportunity to, to work in Java, to code, to, to make an object using code go from point A to point B while going through obstacles. So I, I do believe that it is universal. So with all that, Brendan mentioned code combat. Um, beta the game, another one that they point out, is more of a, um, as they call it, a run and jump style platform, which is like Mario. So like think if you're trying to figure out like what some of these games are like for for beta the game, like that's more like the Mario, the, the run, the jump, the headbutt and to like break the bricks and move on and jump and pull the flag. But what's great is for that one, they talk about you can add platforms, you can move things around through coding. Um, and it's more, it's a, as they put it, a blend of coding scripts and orient, object-oriented programming. Uh, so again, these are all not like the high-level coding. So like if you're doing CS first or um, using Scratch, like that's more the high-level coding uh, that students would be doing. As adults, like once we, once adults master that, then they go to the whole, the black screen or the notepad where they're just typing in what looks like to me random keys that eventually make something do something. And so that one's beta the game. And the other one that I quickly mentioned was hack and slash, which um, for any of you who have kids who have ever played Psychonauts, that I know that was a very popular game a few years ago. Um, They are the ones that developed hack and slash which mixes adventure and puzzling and doesn't pull any punches in terms of what players can do with the game code. So this is the one where, as a coder, they can do whatever they want, which is kind of a cool idea. Is like the world they had them help. They start with a semi-built world, and then they can just go and create whatever they want, which is kind of cool. I also, I know earlier I mentioned Minecraft. That is probably the most popular game in the world right now that there's conventions for Minecraft. You can go into Target or Walmart or even the grocery store and you can see Minecraft-themed toys and backpacks. Basically, it looks like Legos on computeroids. I can't really think of a better word than that. Um, But they all 
they all work that the students have to follow a set of rules. And that's coding is, is like there's a set of rules for things you need to do. So as Brendan was talking about, um, while they were in Burlington, I didn't see that when I was in Burlington, I was in other classrooms. But that idea that you want something to go from point A to point B and then needs to jump, what do you need to say to it to make it happen? Which is kind of cool. Absolutely. And you're just, I'm like, I think you're, you're hitting the nail on the head with what the article talks about with the blending of play and the structure of coding, right? And what I love is that, think about, I mean, it's, it's obvious, right, that playing a game is so much more engaging than listening to a teacher stand in front of the classroom trying to convey the same information. You can picture a teacher in front of a group of students say, what do I have to do to make this person jump from here to there? And half the class, just based on tone of voice or distractions or sleepiness, is not even going to be in tune with what the teacher is asking. Mm-hmm. But if they're playing this game, they, I have to think that they're automatically immediately without even thinking about it are thinking oh how can I get this guy to jump from here to there and they're completely engaged in doing all that critical thinking that we're pushing for so this article is from MindShift it was called three video games that teach programming through play Um, the writer of it is also someone who works for common sense media so that's also another great place. Maybe that's a place where we start when we're looking for a list of games that teach coding. And then we could even branch off in games that teach math skills, games that teach reading and writing skills. But that's where this article is from. And so at Graphite, which is the magazine or the online magazine, um, they have a review of all of these games. So if you really want to understand what these games are like more than the little bit of descriptions that we've been able to give you. You can go there. You could ask us in a month because I imagine at least one of us is going to go and start playing some of these games because we like to play games. And I'll be looking for the girls' games. (laughs) Anyways, games in the classroom, they're fantastic. This article is about games that teach coding through play. Go ahead, check it out. All articles will be listed in our show notes. So this week, normally this would be the spot where we have an interview of the week, but we are taking a break from that so we can continue to gather more interviews, go out and visit you out in your schools and talk with you about how you're using technology in the classroom. So we're taking a break of, for that for this week. We're going to jump right to our question of the week. Suzanne, what is our question of the week? Our question of the week is, what do you do in your classroom to keep your students engaged? What strategies do you have in place? What goals do you have for students? How do you so that's our question of the week. If you want to respond to that, it will be posted up on Yammer in our podcast group. And I'll probably post it on the main page too. And not only is it for the week, but it'll be for the next few weeks. So if you need some time to think about that to give us a good a good solid thinking answer, you have that too. You can message us at Twitter. I am Mike SKSDLA. I'm Suzanne SPSDLA. Brendan is preferring that you send him a pigeon. Is that right? Or horseback, whatever is easier for you. 
So find the Pony Express if you want to email or give Brendan the answer that you have. You can also email us at DLA support at springfieldpublicschools.com. We are pretty active with that website email address. You could also send us snail mail through off interoffice. Um, we are at downtown, so on Main Street. So that's it for this week. I'm Mike Thomas. I'm Sydney Zargis. I'm Brendan Reed. And we'll see you next week.